Hey, if this is your first time listening, I strongly recommend going back to episode one, Where Warm Waters Halt, to listen to the story from the beginning. Okay, here's the show. I am the beginning of eternity, followed by half a circle, close on by half a square. Through my fourth, my fifth is seen, to be the first in every pair. My sixth begins my seventh, the end of time and space. Now put my parts together to see what's taken place. In the summer of 1979, 31 years before Forrest Fenn would bury his cache of gold and jewels somewhere in the Rocky Mountains, an unknown artist, author, poet, and goldsmith published an astonishing book. This book would spawn not only an entirely new genre in the world of publishing, it would create the first known treasure hunt that invited anyone and everyone to participate. You just had to get your hands on the book and be incredibly smart. Really, really smart. Welcome back to X Marks the Spot. You're listening to episode four, Put In Below the Home of Brown. The book was called Masquerade, and was created by a man named Kit Williams. Mr. Williams was an artist in his early 30s when he was approached by a friend in the publishing business who issued him a challenge. Do something that's never been done with a picture book. Challenge accepted. What Williams would create would indeed be unique, and the legacy would be lasting. He crafted his book around a simple story, a fairy tale actually. The sun has fallen in love with the moon, and he's heartbroken. He feels his affections to be unrequited, because whenever he tries to approach the moon, her light dims, and she slowly disappears. Desperate for help, the sun employs his trusted friends from Earth, the frog and the hare. He turns to the frog for his wisdom, and the frog suggests a gift. A beautiful token of his affection would get the message across to the moon, and the two could be together. The sun agrees, borrows some gold from the light of the breaking dawn, and fashions a beautiful rabbit, encrusted with diamonds and jewels, and entrusts it to his other earthly friend, Jack Hare, so chosen for his speed and agility when it comes to the delivery of important things. So off goes the hare with the priceless treasure that will announce to the moon the undying affection of the sun, and they'll all live happily ever after. The only problem is... When Jack arrives at the moon, he realizes he's lost the golden rabbit. It then becomes the job of the reader to decipher 15 beautifully rendered and incredibly intricate illustrations in the book, as well as solve several riddles. Masquerade was a true literary phenomenon that held the public's attention for years. It's no exaggeration to say that without Kit Williams and his fairy tale treasure hunt, there would be no Forrest Fenn. 
But we printed 60,000 copies, which for an unknown book by an unknown artist is pretty amazing. And what happened, it went mad, completely crazy. We thought we're bound to have enough till Christmas. And we reprinted a further 50,000 the day after publication, and three days later, yet another 50,000. I've really never seen a book like it. Masquerade was the first of what came to be known as armchair treasure hunt books. Basically, an intellectual exercise that, if you were clever enough, you might be able to figure out the clues and puzzles in a book and then actually get off the couch and go dig it up in the real world. Kate Williams offered the following deal. If you think you know where the golden hair is hidden, send proof. It would only require a few words for him to know that his puzzle had been solved. And he would send you a plane ticket from anywhere in the world and you could go claim the prize. Just had to bring your own shovel. The book was an instant hit and would eventually sell more than two million copies And what's more, it ignited a human passion that had, for the general public, lay dormant for centuries. Treasure hunts. Here's treasure hunter Alison Teal, the woman Time magazine describes as the female Indiana Jones. You know, waking up in a tent or on a dugout canoe going down the Amazon. Or, you know, my dad's like, when I'm seven, he's like, okay, it's time to climb Mount Everest. I'm like, okay, Papa, you know, <laughs> that's what everybody does, right? And so it was just, it was just kind of this wild whirlwind of adventure. The way that he would keep me going is treasure. It's like in Peru, for example, the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu. Um, you know, so as a baby, I'd be like camping out in Machu Picchu. And I'm little, right? I'm tiny, maybe three, four years old, and we're trekking miles and miles a day. So he'd tell me of ancient legends of, you know, the lost treasure of Paititi was just around the corner. So I'd keep going and I'd keep going and I just wanted to find the treasure. And as I got older, I realized that, you know, a lot of these things are real. Some of it's myth and magical and fun and some of it's, you know, incredible um, treasures and trophies and people um, and wisdom and, and sites, archaeological sites. You know, everything across the board can become a treasure. Um, and so I've really based my life around finding these treasures, but not only finding treasures, but also what their meaning is. And bringing that back to the world to help with, you know, modern day solutions. There's a lot that can be found in ancient times that can help with modern day solutions. And seemingly overnight, the world became enthralled with trying to figure out the secret that, according to Williams, lay in plain sight within the pages of his book. He was receiving hundreds of letters a day from desperate treasure seekers from across the globe, begging for clues or offering half-baked solutions that completely missed the mark. You know, I think treasure hunting has become this intrigue and and sometimes it's like, you know, people will stop at nothing to achieve this. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know if it's, you know, wanting to step outside the mundane perhaps of what their life is at that point or maybe it's an inner treasure quest and sometimes, you know, it's really about the journey and it's not about finding it. But whatever it is, I've noticed that there's can become an obsession with finding something. However, a year and a half into the hunt, and with no one even coming close, Kit Williams decided to publish a major clue in the Sunday Times. Very much in the Kit Williams style, it revolved around a beautiful drawing. But it didn't seem to be much of a clue. Eventually, it was figured out that the drawing needed to be cut out of the newspaper folded in half, and viewed in a mirror while shining a flashlight through it. 
not to read a word backwards, but to see the drawing in reverse. Fun, right? And once you figured all that out, you still had to solve the riddle. Here it is. To do my work, I appointed four men from 20, the tallest and the fattest, and the righteous follow the sinister. Huh? On the surface, it seems to make no sense at all. But when you know what the solution to the book is, you realize that it is the solution to the book. Even crazier, this maniac Kit Williams tells you basically the same thing on the title page of Masquerade. Again, in verse. Within the pages of this book, there is a story told. Of love, adventure, fortunes lost, and a jewel of solid gold. To solve the hidden riddle, you must use your eyes and find the hair in every picture that may point you to the prize. I know, I know. And no one could solve this. This is the book's author, Kit Williams, in a clip from a BBC special that highlighted his life and his work. So I thought, if I've got the 15 pictures that are going to be in the book, and there's something in those pictures which refers to a sentence, so that the sentence describes exactly where the jewel is buried, but you can't get that sentence without understanding the pictures. A few years into the hunt, however, Mr. Williams received a sketch in the mail of a specific, unmistakable location, and he knew in a moment that someone had figured it out. My wife came down to make the tea and get the letters. She looked at all the American letters and said, oh, we do them tonight sometime. Looked through the other letters. There were some bills. There were letters from people who write every day. You'd get to know their writing and everything. And there was just one letter that just was a normal, everyday letter. So she brought it up. And I was lying in bed and opened it up. And there in the letter, a very simple, lovely little letter, was almost a childlike map. And it's and that map was describing exactly where the jewel was. And then there was a man's telephone number. I rang him up and said, you've got it. True to his word, he invited this man to the secret location to claim his prize. Only something seemed off. Because it was. Sadly, this beautiful and noble endeavor would be stained by scandal. It seems that the man who had claimed to solve the puzzle, in fact, had some inside information. He happened to be dating the ex-girlfriend of Kit Williams, the woman Williams was involved with when he created the book, when he created the Golden Rabbit, and of course, when he went on his expedition to conceal it. She knew the place and the distinguishing feature that would convince Williams that his riddle had been solved, even though it hadn't. Shortly afterwards, though, Mr. Williams received another piece of mail, this time from a pair of physics teachers who had successfully solved every aspect of his riddle and could find the location of the treasure to within a few inches. And so they did. So what's the solve? I'll keep this as brief as possible, because without the book in front of you, it's kind of difficult to understand. But you should totally Google it. Here goes. Williams wrote on the title page the following. To solve the hidden riddle, you must use your eyes and find the hair in every picture 
that may point you to the prize. Okay, if we focus just on the mention of body parts, or even when he alludes to a body part, what do we get? Eyes and fingers. Use your eyes, and then he says, point you to the prize. You point with your fingers. That, broadly speaking, is the answer to solving the puzzle. Let me explain by examining the Sunday Times clue, which is a banger. To do my work, I appointed four men from 20, the tallest and the fattest, and the righteous follow the sinister. Four men from 20? What do we have 20 of? We have 10 fingers and 10 toes. So, which four out of those 20? The tallest and the fattest. Or another way of saying that would be the longest and the thickest. Then he writes, very importantly, and the righteous follow the sinister. What he meant by that was that you begin with your left eye and then the right eye. The righteous follows the sinister. Not sure why the left eye is considered the sinister eye, but it is. What you needed to do with that information was find every human and every animal in every painting in a specific order and draw a line, first from their left eye through the longest digit on their left hand, then a line from the right eye through the longest digit on the right hand, then the left eye through the fattest or thickest toe on the left foot, etc., etc. At the terminus of every line, you land on a letter contained in phrases and verse that border every illustration in the book. When all those letters are strung together, it reveals exactly where and when to dig for the golden hair. Here's Kit Williams again. I wanted an exact spot on grass, like a cross on a pirate's map. The place where the jewel was to be buried was where the shadow falls, the tip of the shadow of the cross, where it falls on the ground at midday during the equinox. And what happens if it's not a sunny day? It's not here. (laughs) You don't know where it is. And that also is wonderful. You have to wait for the sun. And that's what the book's all about. People waiting for the sun. The moon is waiting for the sun all her life. And that, that detail, the specific time and place to receive the treasure, that's what separates Masquerade from the hunt for Forrest Fenn's treasure. There was no wiggle room with regard to your solve. You either figured it out or you didn't. There was no need for boots-on-the-ground exploration. There was no possibility of it being somewhere in a 400,000-square-mile area of dangerous mountainous terrain. The solution to Masquerade will lead you to a park in Bedfordshire, England, that contains a cross-shaped monument to Catherine of Aragon, the first wife of Henry VIII. You're instructed to be there at noon on either the Vernal or Autumnal Equinox, and dig at the exact place where the shadow of the cross falls on the ground. X marks the spot. When it comes to armchair treasure hunts, Masquerade was the first and is still the gold standard for books in the genre. There are several websites that will walk you through the book and the solution and what the author is up to these days. It's definitely worth your time. I mentioned earlier that without Kit Williams, there might be no Forrest Fenn. Well, before Mr. Williams introduced his masterpiece to the world, we were introduced some 135 years prior to the intriguing world of cryptology, code-breaking, 
And yes, treasure hunting by a strange and wild man who haunted the cities of the Northeastern United States and left us a rich and enduring legacy of stories and poems filled with images of horror, madness, murder, and betrayal. The great Edgar Allan Poe. More X marks the spot and the fourth clue in Forrest Fenn's poem after the break. Known the world over for his work such as The Raven, The Telltale Heart, and The Cask of Amontillado, it was a short story entitled The Gold Bug that first drew Poe widespread acclaim. It's a story about a man who finds a secret message on an old piece of parchment with a seemingly random series of letters and symbols scrawled across it. But, through deductive reasoning, he's able to decipher what the message reads. His process revealed a substitution cipher based on letter frequencies in the English language. The letter E shows up the most, followed by T, then S. I mean, we've all watched Wheel of Fortune. By figuring out letter frequencies, he was able to replace the letters and symbols that made no sense with the correct letters, which spelled out where he had to go and how to find buried pirate treasure worth millions. The decrypted clue involved rock formations and degrees of latitude, a skull in a tree, and 50 paces to this exact spot. The story was an enormous success and has influenced pop culture ever since. Robert Louis Stevenson was inspired by Poe for his book, Treasure Island, and all you Gen Xers out there remember, I'm sure, the treasure hunt in The Goonies. Poe introduced the idea of cryptology to the masses. The idea that hidden treasure may be out there, and most importantly, that anyone, including you, could figure out where it is and go get it. But again, just like in Masquerade, the solution in the gold bug led directly to the treasure. To within a few inches. There was no guessing, no forcing a clue to work within your solve. And you couldn't just skip over something that didn't make sense and say, ah, screw it, I'll figure it out when I get boots on the ground. However, you can draw a straight line from Edgar Allan Poe to Kit Williams to Forrest Fenn. Three very different men with very different agendas, aside from the deep and abiding desire to frustrate us. Which brings us to the fourth clue in Forrest's poem. Put in below the home of Brown. This clue proved to be very troublesome for many, many searchers. It also proved to be very dangerous for Forrest himself. First this evening, Horse Fen's famous treasure hunt has now landed a man behind bars. That's right, that man told police the clues pointed him to Forrest Fenn's house in Santa Fe. Santa Fe police say they got a burglary call on Friday evening at a sprawling house on Old Santa Fe Trail near Old Pecos Trail. There was a a family member believed to be of uh, Mr. Fenn was detaining an individual who had broke into the residence. That residence was the home of author Forrest Fenn. Police say they found Robert Miller on Fenn's property. Miller flew to Santa Fe from his home state of Pennsylvania in search of Fenn's well-publicized hidden treasure. He told police he needed it for his family because he only had $130 in his bank account. 
The suspect was very upset. I admitted that he did break into the home believing he found the treasure that was quoted in Mr. Fenn's poem. Police say Miller got onto Fenn's property by kicking down this small door next to the main gate. According to the criminal complaint, Miller told police he thought the small door was a clue from Fenn's poem in the book, The Thrill of the Chase. A line in the poem says, put in below the home of Brown. His quest was a failure, and so was his attempt to talk his way out of trouble. I thought the poem directed me into here. I thought it said, poem. Yeah, the, the treasure map, the treasure hunt, you know. Someone actually believed that Forrest would build a treasure hunt that required a total stranger to dig under Forrest's own home. And this guy actually tried. What the news report didn't include was the fact that Forrest himself held this guy at gunpoint until the cops arrived. Aside from the breaking and entering at the Fen home, there were several other unlawful entries with the intent to get rich mishaps, all the way from Santa Fe to Yellowstone. At one point in the madness, it seemed everyone with the surname Brown had clueless treasure hunters sniffing around their homes, desperate for a whiff of the gold. And graveyards? Oh boy. If you recall the classic Western, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, then you remember that the stolen Confederate gold was hidden in an unmarked grave. Well, absent any relevant connection to a graveyard, scores of searchers believed the gold to be hidden in a grave marked with the name Brown. Yes, there were attempts that amounted to actual grave robbing, innocent though they were. Several attempts, actually. There were incidents of trespassing at homes with the name Brown. People with dogs trained to smell bronze so they could, what, have little Fido dig up some stranger's outhouse? Add to that the desecration of graves by treasure hunters running on a gold fever adrenaline high. Forrest was forced to make some announcements. And how did he do it? Did he immediately let everyone know either through Dale's blog, where they all hung out, maybe a press release or a public service announcement to prevent any further issues. I mean, people were digging up outhouses because, well, the home of Brown. Did he simply say, stop going to people's private homes and for God's sake, stop digging up freaking graves? Nope. Forrest didn't do any of those things. Instead, he couched his warnings to the search community in the form of clues on the Today Show. His second appearance with Matt Lauer was the clue, the treasure is not associated with any structure. A month later, it was, the treasure is not in a graveyard. Now this was all, again, a very, very foresty thing to pull off. He was being pressured to call off the crazies and get them to stop committing felonies, and he turned it into a marketing bonanza. Holy crap, Forrest is giving another clue. We'll definitely find the treasure now. But let's talk about the first part of the clue. The first three words. Put in below. After the break. Put in below. Now, put in has widely been deciphered, probably erroneously, as a nautical term, meaning to enter into a harbor or a port. But there was never any mention of the need of a boat 
So we need to assume that Fenn ascribed this bit of poetic license to his car. If we substitute pull over below the home of Brown in favor of put in below the home of Brown, then we just need to find a location that Fenn thinks should be called the home of Brown, pull over below it. And if we're following a river, naturally that means downstream. So we pull over and park the car downstream of a place that could be considered to be the home of Brown. See, and that's one of the curious and maddening aspects of the poem, the unspecified specificity. You know exactly where to go if you could only figure out where to go. Interestingly, there were several thoughtful, conceivable solves for put in below the home of Brown. Most centered around fishing and brown trout, a favorite offense. Also, most found it curious that the word brown, or the name brown, was capitalized in the poem. Fenn sleuths found in other writings that he often capitalized brown when writing about the fish. Complicating matters, though, was the unfortunate fact that there were several men with the surname brown that had varying degrees of impact on the Rocky Mountain states. There's a Brown Mountain in Colorado, Brown's Park, and Brown's National Wildlife Refuge also in Colorado. The Norris Geyser in Yellowstone is near the Ranger Brown Museum. There used to be a Fort Brown in Wyoming. Then there's the grizzly bear, also known as the brown bear, a species that Forrest was very familiar with. And of course, as discussed, brown trout. But if it was a bear or a fish, where could one consider their home to be? Or more specifically, where would Forrest consider their home to be? The searchers we spoke to had many different ideas on the matter. Here's John Morgan. So, you know, the other thing that I had that I felt like was an incredible solve that made it worth me flying from my home in New York City to Santa Fe was my solution for Helmer Brown. This and Warm Waters Halt were the two things that I anchored my belief on. So home of Brown, this artist that was native to the Santa Fe area and Forrest Finn had been a dealer of his paintings, I found, and his last name was Brown. And he had a home in Taos uh, that was kind of like around the same longitude as this area of my search. So I was like, okay, below where his house is, is where I enter and I, you know, he had a connection to Finn. He was an artist. Finn dealt his work. He had a home right next to the place where the warm waters that I found halting were. And I was like, this is it. I'm buying a plane ticket and I'm going to go out there and get this treasure. But in retrospect, I mean, it's probably more complicated than whatever the real solution is. Petra Perkins' thoughts on the matter were as follows. There's a, a home there right on the creek where gold was found a store, but it was owned by a Mr. Brown. So <laughs> I had done quite a bit of research to get to that point, And I, I was just elated to find out there was a home there that could have been the home of Brown, right on the creek. So it's called Grass Copper Creek, where gold was found. So I went there and looked at the home of Brown. And yes, it seemed like this whole thing could have happened. And if you put in below the home of Brown, that means put into the creek, you 
either walk through the creek or you drive a boat through the creek or you drive your car through the creek like I did, you get to the location. And of course, Dale Neitzel. I had no idea what the home of Brown was, but I thought I could figure it out. I had some ideas of maybe what he was talking about, but, you know, I, I wasn't convinced that this was correct. But I felt if I got out there and started walking around, I could figure this out. What makes this clue important is Forrest's own public comments about it. He's quoted as saying, if you could figure out the home of Brown, you could walk right to the treasure. As soon as that quote made the rounds, home of Brown instantly became the most important clue in the poem, even more so than where warm waters halt. In the final analysis, given Fenn's clues about the treasure not being associated with a structure or a graveyard, the smart money seems to be on the idea that the home of Brown must have something to do with a favorite fishing hole from Forrest's childhood. Somewhere that he was always able to catch a nice brown trout because they were always home at this particular fishing hole. It would fit with the prevalence of water connected with the first few clues, as well as the close proximity to a canyon. And Forrest often spoke and wrote about his affinity for fly fishing. So if we look at the mountains north of Santa Fe, where there's a river near a canyon and has great trout fishing, I'd say we could narrow our search down to roughly several hundred thousand possibilities. Those outhouses suddenly aren't looking too bad. For these first few episodes, we've been focused on the true believers, the purists, and most importantly, the searchers who were able to admit that they were wrong in their solves, and someone just beat them to it. Honorable warriors who were bested and left the battlefield on their shields, as it were. There is, however, another group of diehard searchers who, to this day, refuse to give up. Who refuse to believe in this Jack Stoof joker who claims to have found the treasure but won't say where. You remember the story of the World War II soldier from Japan who refused to believe that his nation had surrendered. And he lived on a small, barely inhabited island in the South Pacific, fighting the good fight until the 70s. People like Barbara Anderson. If you followed the Forest Fen saga, you may recognize her name. She's the one suing the Fen estate for the treasure, which she claims is rightfully hers. Does she have a solve for where warm waters halt? Of course. I can't tell you. How about for Home of Brown? I can't do that. I can't do that. Yeah, I can't do that. Oh, yeah. So what's her endgame? He tells you in his poem at one of the bookstores that he's like the crocodile. I mean, he's telling you, he, he tells you at the beginning of the book, he's a joker. Uh, you know, you better watch out because you're going to, the crocodile is looking for the fish to eat. He's telling you, welcome to my swamp. We'll get to that in the next episode. Also, we'll hear from a few searchers who think the whole thing was an elaborate hoax and that either there never was any treasure or that someone was closing in and Fenn didn't want anyone to find it. So he retrieved it himself. When Dale Neitzel was asked his thoughts about such people, he offered the following response. I call them fuckheads and, and, uh, and ignore them. That's next time on X Marks the Spot. 
X Marks the Spot, The Legend of Forest Fen, is a Cavalry Audio production. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and Jason Seagraves. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Our associate producer is Margot Carmichael. Zach McNeese is our sound editor, mixer, and post-production supervisor. Music by Blue Dot Sessions and Soundstripe, with additional original music by Bruce Whitkin. I'm Brandon Morgan, your writer and narrator. Thanks for listening.